Well, a very warm welcome, everybody, to the last of the Social Contracts Research Network Zoom seminars for this semester. And it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker for this session. I can't say this morning or this evening because people are joining us from uh, all over the world. So where, wherever you are, you're very welcome. Thank you uh, for joining us for this meeting. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Timothy Howells, who's going to be our speaker today. Uh, he serves as Associate Director of the Laudato Sea Research Institute, uh, based at Campion Hall in the University of Oxford. And his research sits at the nexus of politics and theology, uh, with a particular emphasis on Earth systems sciences. Uh, his doctoral thesis explored the concept of the Anthropocene within the realms of recent continental philosophy and religion, and his academic pursuits have since somewhat evolved to scrutinize the political dimensions of climate change. Uh, and uh, Dr. Howell's title for today, uh, very intriguingly, uh, and I'm sure in a way that's going to uh, provoke and give rise to many questions, uh, is the significance of the individual and the concept of the social in the work of Carl Schmitt. So please do join me uh, in welcoming Dr. Timothy Howells. Chris, and it's a delight to see you all, some friends, some people I don't yet know. So thank you for joining us uh, this morning, this afternoon, or this evening. And thank you to Chris. Um, Chris and I, well, actually, we go all the way back to university days, don't we? So it's lovely to see you again remotely. Um, just by way of preface, as I share screen, um, I hope you will bear with a... Um, work in progress here. I don't primarily work on the uh, thought of Carl Schmidt, but it's always been interesting and provocative to me in ways that I'll go on to describe. I was originally going to offer quite a close reading of an early Schmidt text, and I will uh, base a number of these thoughts around that text, but I've actually decided to expand out a bit and uh, keep and, and assume a little less uh, familiarity with Schmidt um, than uh, one might in a specialist forum. So I hope as well that's useful. Um, and I'm very keen to hear thoughts and discussion to follow. Um, I don't either work specifically in the social contract uh, political philosophy tradition. So I'll be coming at some of the broader concepts tangentially, as it were, and I think we'll touch upon them and we can synthesize those thoughts further in discussion. So I hope that's all right by way of preface, and I will just dive in with some thoughts. So does the work of Carl Schmidt offer anything for a constructive account of the social? For some readers, Schmidt is nothing but a situational thinker whose works are best understood as interventions in particular historical moments, if you like. They certainly don't add up to anything that we might call a unified historical or theoretical vision, and certainly not of the social. Most readers, however, do discern a vision, even a unified theoretical vision in Schmidt's work. And of course, this is usually 
identified as centering on the idea of sovereignty. But here too, an account of the social might seem problematic. Why? Because for those who read him in this way, through this lens, Schmidt clearly deployed the idea of sovereignty for a justification of the absolute hegemony of the nation state. So concerned about modern anarchy and seeking ways to ensure a buttressing of order against disorder, Schmidt argued that social order can only be guaranteed when a population wholly and fully accedes to the sovereign authority of the state. Famously, Schmidt suggested this is most evident at times of social or political crisis or emergency, when the state visibly and forcefully takes on exceptional powers, powers of exception. And you can see how that insight might be extended to the more pernicious idea that such a state of crisis or emergency is needed to be generated continuously in order to justify the state. That's the point that, of course, has been um, flagged up by various modern uh, commentators on Schmidt. But as Schmidt sees it, the basic structure of all social order is linked to the idea of the sovereign authority of the state. What sort of heritage does Schmidt draw on in making that point? Well, we can readily see him as um, drawing on a sort of or offering an update of a Hobbesian figure of the Leviathan. Uh, Schmidt, of course, um, engaged with Hobbes in various ways throughout his career and particularly in the 1930s. But with Schmidt, we perhaps see um, an anthropological pessimism that goes even beyond Hobbes. For unlike with Hobbes, um, unlike with Hobbes, for Schmidt, there's not even the chance that by reason we might lift ourselves up into some form of social contractarianism. So here's a, a quote um, from Schmidt. The embodied concrete individual, if our considerations do not move beyond mere material corporality, is a wholly accidental unity, a wafted together heap of atoms whose figure, individuality and uniqueness are none other than that of dust that has been spun into a column by a whirlwind. And so with that highly pessimistic anthropology, perhaps with Schmidt, we find an even greater emphasis on the absolute sovereignty of the state apart from its representative function. So certainly there we have uh, uh, and yes, and we might indeed sort of sense um, sense echoes of um, sort of contemporary integralisms and so forth in that sort of uh, insight from Schmidt. Um, sorry, let me come back to my slide. Here we go. Yes. So there we have a heritage uh, somewhat pointing back to Hobbes. But uh, as is well known, we can also trace a heritage for Schmidt in the Catholic counter-revolutionary tradition. Um, Donoso Cortes, a Spanish diplomat, politician, and theologian, 
and de Maistre, a French philosopher, lawyer, diplomat, um, both of whom advocated um, social hierarchy and monarchy in the period immediately following the French Revolution. So Schmidt is drawing on these sorts of figures, um, particularly, I think, those who add a sort of theological voluntarism, um, by which I mean these thinkers draw a link between the absolute sovereignty of the state, for which they advocate, and the idea of an arbitrary sovereign divine will. Um, so we may not be surprised then that Schmidt's work does indeed take up these sort of Catholic integral uh, is taken up by these sort of Catholic integralism positions in our current days. So all this seems a very long way away from a vision of the state as somehow representing its internal um, constituent members so as to generate uh, what we might call a spontaneous social or a flourishing political society in its own terms. And so especially I would suggest for those from a liberal perspective who will want to above all safeguard uh, the expression of individual rights and freedoms within society, extracting account of the social from Schmidt's work would seem uh, quite uh, implausible or even nonsensical task. And if you will allow me a moment of indulgence, I think this is quite nicely summed up by um, in the story of Schmidt's interactions um, in the 1930s with the German um, philosopher, sort of phenomenologist, really, Karl Löwit. Um, now, Schmidt was actually under the impression that Löwit, uh, who was a student of Heidegger's at the time, was an admirer of his work. Um, nothing could have been further from the truth. Schmidt was very often mistaken in identifying those who were his friends, his real friends, as it were. Um, their first encounter actually was in Rome in 1935. Lervit had fled Nazi Germany, uh, I think, the year before, for Italy. And Schmidt had come to Rome that year for a visiting lecture. Now, Lervit was interested to hear uh, and eagerly took his seat in the auditorium. But here's how he described the subsequent experience of listening to that lecture by Schmidt. Quote, Schmidt's personal impression did not match my expectations. He stood before me not as the self-assured dictator, but rather as a petty bourgeois with a bland, rosy face. And yet the central point of his lecture was as consistent as it was despicable. The requirement of absolute submission to a sovereign authority that is supervenient over all human life. This is what he attributed as the role and function of the state. So Lovitz subsequently fled, as it were, the lecture hall, went home and wrote an article that is famous today called The Occasional Decisionism of Carl Schmidt, contained now in this um, series of essays. And in that essay, Lovett argued that Schmidt's concept of sovereignty was modelled on nothing less than the Christian doctrine of God, the sovereignty of the state being analogous to the notion of the sovereignty of the divine being himself. 
quote, what then does this imply for the rights and freedoms of the people who live under its authority? Levitt continued, well, it follows, he concludes, these rights and freedoms must be secondary, derivative, and concessionary since they're subject at any time to the overruling or suspension by the will of the sovereign state. So none of this, I would dare to suggest, sounds particularly promising for a robust or productive account of social life. Moreover, although some have tried to argue otherwise, it's surely hard, it's certainly hard, to overlook the implications of Schmidt's thought for the decisions he made in his own life, his own commitments and allegiances. For the facts of the matter are decisive. Schmidt's understanding of sovereignty led him inexorably, we might say, in the direction of different modes of political authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and finally towards national socialism itself. He hadn't been a supporter of Hitler before he came to power, um, but afterwards, Schmidt sided fully with the Nazis uh, after 1933, quickly obtaining for himself a position of significant influence and being perceived as, as it were, the crown jurist of National Socialism. He devoted himself with undue enthusiasm to such tasks as the defence of Hitler's extrajudicial killing of opponents, uh, the purging of Jewish influence in law, uh, confiscation of property, and so on, before he himself was ousted in late 1936 after internal infighting. Um, the story thereafter is complex and one that we can't go into right now, but suffice to say it's very hard indeed to find a mea culpa at any time in Schmidt's life all the way up to 1988 when he passed away. Surely all this puts a full stop to what we can do with Schmidt's work, especially if we have any thought of applying it for a constructive account of the social or contemporary social life. But, as you will know, Schmidt's thought has been generative in other ways. And given what I've just described, some of these other ways might be uh, quite surprising. Uh, for some thinkers from the left, Schmidt has been interpreted as a theorist, not of uh, some raw, absolute authority of the state, but of a theorist of popular sovereignty, of constituent power, and even of a certain form of democracy. And Schmidt's ideas crop up in, a, in the writing of uh, critical thinkers whom I personally admire or find stimulating. So you'll find apparently constructive engagements with Schmidt in uh, the work of, among others, Italian political theorist Simo Cassiari, um, German philosopher Peter Schlotterdijk, although I'll bracket my admiration there, French sociologist Bruno Latour, and even in theology with uh, works by British environmental theologian Michael Northcott. For these and others, Schmidt's ideas actually provide useful resources for thinking about the new political, cultural and social configurations they believe are needed 
at the present time. So what are we to make of this? Can it really be the case, as some of these thinkers claim, that rather than authoritarianism, Schmidt's thought is deployable for a generative account of social life, one that might even equip us to face our manifold contemporary global challenges? Well, if you want to know what I think, um, for what it's worth, I'm not sh very sure that it is. I think it would be a pretty fine line to walk. Moreover, I don't always understand why one would wish to tread such a path in the company of a thinker like Schmidt. But today I do want to operate in that marginal space. I want to inquire what some of these thinkers uh, believe they found in Schmidt's work. Are they right? Uh, to what extent um, can we say, if any, that Schmidt offers um, an account of the emancipation or the flourishing of the individual uh, such that it could be scaled up into some social aggregate? How might that relate to the idea of the state as sovereign? And does this have anything to do with what we might recognise as taking place within a social contract tradition? So I'm going to explore, as I said at the beginning, quite widely some of Schmidt's work, um, but I will uh, try to draw insights in particular from a text that was published just last year or the year before. Um, this is an, a very early essay, 1913, or published in 14, uh, called The Value of the State and the Significance of the Individual. Um, it's been published in this rather sort of dense legal, legal philosophical um, edited volume, um, but it's really an excellent resource. And I think this text actually, early as it is, frames a number of the uh, later more famous concepts that we, with which we may be familiar. So let's go in something like this order. We'll look at, first of all, Schmidt's understanding of the individual, uh, then go back to uh, perhaps a renewed interpretation of the function of the state, and then we'll try to bring that together and ask how this might model a social order that's attractive for some of these contemporary critical thinkers. So first of all, um, the meaning of the individual. In that early text that I just mentioned, um, Schmidt begins with, his, with a description of the concept of the individual that he believes is predominant within modern liberal society. Uh, and we'll have to do some uh, analysis of those terms, but for now I'll place them, uh, offer them as a placeholder. So here's Schmidt's diagnosis of the concept of the individual in within liberalism, quote, the modern human in his normal empirical type is of the view that he is free, skeptical, and authority inimical and thoroughly individualistic. Modernity believes itself the first to have actually discovered and to have honored this individual and thus to have overcome antiquated traditions and authorities. So for Schmidt, modern liberal societies, uh, European societies, identify the highest expression of human dignity as consisting in the absolute freedom of the individual to pursue her or his own choices and behaviours. 
So here's another quote. The freedom of the individual is indeed regarded today as the peak and measure of all aspirations. Now, there's obviously a, a complex um, intellectual history genealogy to this concept of the individual from the Enlightenment through to Romanticism and then into 20th century political philosophy and so on. And Schmidt does explore a number of those genealogies in his 1919 book, Political Romanticism. Um, but I think in that early text and elsewhere, Schmidt takes some care to link them also to a social contract tradition, um, or at least a certain strand of it, perhaps passing through Locke, Kant and Rousseau, um, and to paint with a broad brush, um, Schmidt would say something like that tradition uh, identifies the task of the state or the sovereign as consisting in the representation of individual rights or fundamental individual interest to life, liberty, property, and so on. So here Schmidt is interpreting that the social contract tradition as incubator of the very same concept of the individual uh, that is assumed within modern liberal societies, the one we just noted. But as is well known, Schmidt subjects that concept of the individual to a very rigorous critique. He argues that notwithstanding its claim, the modern liberal state does not at all manage to represent the interests of the various subjects under its jurisdiction, at least according to that definition. In fact, the modern liberal state ends up totally disregarding or overdetermining what he calls the realm of concrete human life with its plurality of individual voices and interests. Now, why would that be the case? Why would the modern liberal state be guilty of such an overdetermination? Well, uh, for Schmidt, um, um, rather than representing that realm of concrete human life, the modern liberal state defers it. Um, in fact, it insists that um, the, our individual interests, values, and so on, um, must be arbitrated um, by what he calls a, a quote, a system of supervenient Grundnormen, general norms. And these, you know, we could have then identify these as you know, technocratic or something like that. Um, so for liberal constitutionalists, this is essential, is it not? For, um, you know, if all voices and interests are to be equally represented, tolerated and respected, um, then we need some overweening um, uh, system of toleration that ensures none of them take over. And Schmidt saying, look, this is what actually becomes a system of arbitration rather than mere toleration. And so the modern liberal state cannot claim, says Schmidt, to represent the subjects under its jurisdiction according to the free expression of their individuality, because it doesn't take account of their real conflicting debates the values that differentiate them from their neighbours, the values that are really worth living and dying for, if you like. 
So there may be an appearance of unity within uh, such a state, um, but it's a unity that hasn't emerged from the free interplay of its constituent parts. It's imposed from above, and therefore it's superficial. And that's why Schmidt makes that apparently paradoxical claim that the modern liberal state cannot represent the voices and interests of individual human subjects who reside within it, that realm of concrete human life. So here he is in the, uh, this actually the preface to the second edition of his book on parliamentary democracy. And he writes, quote, the crisis of the modern state arises from the fact that it cannot realize its own democratic impulse. It cannot realize a mass democracy, a true representation of human nature as it really is. And Schmidt um, discerned that dynamic also operating at the level of international and multinational organizations, uh, such as in his case, the League of Nations and then the UN. Uh, since these two necessarily subsume uh, the particular interests of their constituent nation-state members to universalist norms that can never adequately represent the realm of competing interests from which they supposedly derive. Now, in making this diagnosis, um, Schmidt again draws upon social contract imagery, but I think inverts it. Um, because modern liberal states suppose themselves to be guarantors of the social contract as far as they claim to represent the most fundamental rights of their constituent members. But on, you can see that on the contrary for Schmidt, modern liberal societies actually hold us back in something like that Hobbesian state of nature, some frenzy of competing interpretations about values and truth that can never be brought into an order precisely because um, they are never finally and fully represented. Or we might say that order has already been prematurely um, unified apart from a genuine representation of its plurality. Okay, so that is Schmidt's critique of the modern liberal state and its relation to individuals and a social aggregate. But if that's the critique, then what does he propose as an alternative? And so here we can move into the second area today, which is his interpretation of the function of the state. So for Schmidt, um, the absolute sovereignty of the state that he describes should not really, I think, be understood in terms of the wielding of some absolute arbitrary authority, um, wholly dissociated from the realm of concrete human life. That was his critique of liberalism. Rather, for Schmidt, um, the absolute sovereignty of the state, he understands as a kind of taking up an adjudication of those contestations swirling down below. The function of the state is not to withdraw um, from that adjudication, for example, by referring it upwards to that general norm that cannot properly address or encapsulate what's at stake, 
Um, rather, the function of the state is to model this contestation and ultimately to decide upon it. So for Schmidt, the absolute sovereignty of the state does have some kind of organic connection with the realm of concrete human life that it governs. And indeed, it's inseparable from that. Its sovereignty is organic, it's synthetic of the realm of concrete life that it adjudicates. And if we want to accept that reading, then we can perhaps uh, see why Schmidt's definition of politics is, famously so, in terms of this friend-enemy distinction. And of course, this has often been read as a warrant for jingoistic militarism or something of that sort. But Schmidt is surely making a more subtle point here. For him, the function of the state is to represent and then decide upon a contestation between its members. This is what takes its members out of that state of nature, as it were, the war of all against all, and into a rule-bound order. So here there is, there must be consent, at least implicitly, to a shared value or way of life that will henceforth define that political society. And that necessarily implies an exteriority, uh, some other, some group who does not share this value or who does not want to pursue that same way of life. And that's what Schmidt describes as the enemy. Now, I think his language is, um, you know, right on the razor edge of um, what, of morality here. But Schmidt's going to claim that um, in using this word enemy, uh, he's not actually trying to define a moral category. Um, this simply designates some other grouping of people who share value or way of life is different from ours and is therefore represented by a different sovereign, as it were. They, they, they function within a different political society, or we might even say a different social contract. And Schmidt does try to make this clear. So, for example, he uh, notes that when he uses the word enemy, he's not intending to echo the Latin term inimicus, which we might translate as an adversary whom one hates. Um, rather, his use of the word enemy better reflects the Latin word hostis, which he understands as follows. A hostis can be understood as a formal or public enemy, one that exists at least potentially when a fighting collectivity of people confronts another and represents their identity on the basis of this difference. Um, so here, I'll just give you this very helpful, longer quotation again. Quote, the distinction of friend and enemy denotes the utmost degree of intensity of a union or separation, of an association or dissociation. It can exist theoretically and practically without having simultaneously to draw upon moral, aesthetic, economic or other distinctions. The political enemy need not be morally evil or aesthetically ugly. 
He need not appear as an economic competitor. It may even be advantageous to engage with him in business transactions. But he is nevertheless the other, the stranger. And it's sufficient for his nature that he is in a specially intense way, existentially something different and alien, so that in the extreme case, conflicts with him are possible. These can neither be decided by a previously determined general norm, nor by the judgment of a disinterested and therefore neutral third party. And you can see at the end there, the critique of liberalism uh, snuffling back in. So what are we saying here? I'm suggesting that Schmidt's work might provide a rather more nuanced perspective on the question of representation than is usually assumed um, when people look at his concept of mere sovereignty. Well, Schmidt does, um, certainly Schmidt does posit the idea of the absolute sovereignty of the state, but this is not an arbitrary wielding of power that is simply imposed upon its subjects. It's a sovereignty, uh, by contrast, that in complex ways reflects, but also decides upon the realm of concrete human life it governs. And in this sense, the state can preside, can preside over a highly animated, energized and representative political space precisely by recourse to this concept of sovereignty. That's something that the liberal state uh, could never, the liberal regime of norms could never facilitate, he thinks, um, because the effect of its, its norm is to sort of generate inertia and mere compliance to a rule that's already secured that contestation in advance. So there's no other, there's no enemy in the re regime of liberalism. And so there can be no politics. And so there can be no social realm understood in this way. And I've laid that interpretation of Schmidt out for you because I think this is what causes the eyebrows to be raised of a number of the critical thinkers that we mentioned earlier. So if you will excuse me, here is a brief detour as to one of them. Uh, and here I'm gonna choose, select the work of Bruno Latour. So what on earth has Latour got to do with Schmidt? Well, he first, he told me that he first encountered Schmidt around 2010, so fairly late in his career. And um, mention of Schmidt um, begins to surface in his work around that time, especially in this 2016 book, Facing Gaia. Now, Latour takes care, <laughs> great care, to um, convey that you know, his engagement with Schmidt is very cautious. So um, he himself was not interested in political authoritarianism. Um, you know, indeed, I would say his whole work could be characterized as um, mitigating against any such idea. So he acknowledges that Schmidt is a reactionary and even a toxic thinker. The recommended, these are all quotes, dosage of his thoughts should be consumed um, as carefully as we would do with a powerful poison. Um, and yet he agrees that Schmidt's work is unavoidable. Perhaps then one might pilfer from him his words. What is it then about Schmidt's work 
that's piqued the interest of Bruno Latour? Well, first of all, um, uh, Latour shares Schmidt's suspicion that contemporary liberal political society has in some way failed. It's failed to represent that realm of concrete human life. Uh, so Latour points to the way in which modern subjects do frequently feel de-animated when faced with contemporary challenges. Um, whether cultural, social, political, religious or environmental. Uh, in reaction to the climate crisis, for example, um, we're continually reminded of the role that we have to play as individuals, of our carbon footprint and so on. Um, and yet, the, what we can actually do seems unclear, does it not? Um, often we find ourselves reduced to observing from afar the operations of political or scientific elites, uh, corporations or other global actors, uh, merely trusting in the solutions they might come up with or the deliverance they might provide in forums far removed from anything we ourselves might hope to influence. This is what Latour calls the deanimation of the contemporary political sphere. So here's a quote. In my work, I've sought to describe and critique a tendency towards the depoliticization of the contemporary public domain. In contrast to our benighted past, modernity claimed that the interests of all people would be taken into account. A new day of representation was upon us, but that door never arrived. Instead, we found ourselves increasingly deanimated, subservient to forces that are above and beyond us, unwilling or unable to raise our voices to fight for what matters to us or to stand against what we believe to be wrong. And you see lots of echoes of a Schmittian diagnosis there. So first of all, Schmidt, uh, Latour sort of accepts that diagnosis. But second, he takes that on. Uh, he accepts Schmidt's point that if a vibrant social order is to be possible at all, then there must be acknowledgement of space for acts of genuine contestation and negotiation, winners and losers, recruitment and debate between people, uh, especially at this time of climate crisis, as he sees it. Can we really afford to leave this issue to some sort of lowest common denominator form of consensus or to a general norm that hasn't truly emerged from our own values? Latour therefore encourages a dosage of Schmittian politics, where those who discern the need for radical and urgent action right now demand representation in some larger by some larger sovereign order. Um, even, even if this generates disquiet and, and rupture at times within, let's say, Western society that believes it can address this crisis, this climate crisis, with tools that are already available to it. So here's another quote from Latour. Uh, Schmidt's choice, he says, is terribly clear. Either you agree to tell foes from friends and then you engage in politics, sharply defining the borderlines of wars. Fancy this language, wars about what the world is made of. Or you shy away from waging wars and having enemies, but then you do away with politics itself. Now remember, Latour is by no means seeking any sort of 
belligerence in any kind of sense of violence here. He's talking here about a sort of um, abstract notion of defining the values that are existential for us. And he's willingly using a Schmittian discourse to do that. Um, and then finally, for Latour, um, I think where Latour does perhaps possibly alter something from Schmidt is he does, granted all that, those sort of, that sort of political configuration, he doesn't, however, necessarily identify the locate, locus of this um, as occurring in the state itself. He sees this as coalescing into sort of new associations and gatherings, new configurations, more or less formal, more or less institutional. Um, you know, he often spoke of the thrill he had at climate marches in Paris and so on that he would attend, where people from very different traditions would stand shoulder to shoulder, you know, radically divergent from each other in terms of the political spectrum, you know, left or right, but united by some shared value that they were prepared to fight for and for which they demand representation. Um, so here's a final quote. Uh, when it comes to ecologies, this is from Latour Anschultz's recent, fi his final book. Um, when it comes to ecology, we encounter some pretty strange bedfellows. We recognize as brothers in arms, activists who from a social cultural standpoint belong to quite different constituencies. So we find ourselves in the midst of a generalized redescription of social life. We must keep asking ourselves the question, when disputes involve ecology, who do you feel close to and who do you feel terribly far from? From this point of recognition, politics takes off. And as this politics proceeds, it seeks permanent, stable and sovereign representation, not a representation given to us from above, but one that is emergent from below. I think that final sentence actually is sort of sneaks in from an essay rather than this book, but it, the, I think the point is clear. So I've sought to suggest, to, I think to understand um, why it is that Schmidt's thought, as dangerous as it seems to be, um, has been taken up by contemporary critical theorists like Latour. Because these theorists are aware that Schmidt's ideas center on the idea of sovereignty. But for them, this is a sovereignty that grows out of or is in connection with the realm of concrete human life. In other words, the real voices and interests of a population who coalesce around some value that matters to them and then demand representation for it. Now, Schmidt could only envisage that really in terms of the form of the nation state, although we could discuss where his post-1950 work on international order goes. But Latour and others, are, as we've seen, are able to disperse that across other sorts of social groupings. So Latour will say, this is what we understand by the Leviathan and what Schmidt indicates in an ideal register, that what matters to us is represented by a sovereign who is never in excess of our commitment to a shared value. Okay, so we've just about come towards the end. I've tried to give one particular reading 
of Schmidt on the individual. And I've tried to show how that might be lifted up into a theory of social order or the state that respects or dignifies the meaning of the individual. And then I've gone on to say that this reading of Schmidt is what intrigues contemporary social theorists like Grunelator. But just in the final few moments, um, let's offer some evaluation of that. Uh, is this really viable? Is this really what Schmidt is saying? And I think the answer to that is almost certainly not quite. And we can go back in this final moment to that early text. Because yes, this text, as we saw, does offer that critique of the modern liberal definition of the individual. And it does seem to demand that we find some better definition or enframing of social order that can represent humans as they really are. But it doesn't quite provide the resources for that bottom-up movement of representation that Latour and others think it does. Rather, Schmidt argues that it is the constitutional state, pure and simple, that confers dignity on the individual, not the other way round. The state is the mediator of law, understood here as Recht, a substantive ideal of good order. The state mediates that ideal to the people. Schmidt therefore sees this in an odd way, sees the state as the only true subject. Uh, and through the state, positive or statutory laws are offered to the population. What does that mean for the individuals that live in the state? Well, for Schmidt, these become, uh, nothing, the individual has significance, as it were, only as a civil servant of the state, devoted to its ordering of the social. Uh, he talks about a, a sort of melting together or a sort of reshaping, umschmelzung, of uh, the individual into a social order that's derivative of this sort of task. And again, we could discuss afterwards how there are echoes of, you know, the concepts of religious concepts, the idea of a vocational office in the Catholic Church, where an individual's sort of whole being is taken up um, in service to a calling or a vocation. So here's what Schmidt says. The individual, as a singular empirical essence, disappears in order to be grasped by the law and the state for the task of realising law and in order to receive its own meaning from that task and its own value from this closed world in accordance with its norms. Or really quite a key statement the attribution of the value of the individual to his task and its fulfillment does not annihilate the dignity of the individual, rather it shows the way in the first place to a justified dignity. Now Latour and others will be reading statements like this about the, dig the justified dignity of the individual and taking out of them something that I'm suggesting we can't quite get from Schmidt. 
Schmidt dares to go where perhaps liberalism doesn't, namely in the direction of a robust theory of the state in which individual human lives can be represented. And that's why Schmidt is alluring to Latour. But in this reading, he's surely mistaken. Um, Schmidt does not agree that the state and the social order it curates is a straightforward representation of individual or group causes defined in this way. On the contrary, he reverses that directionality. The function of the state is to sublimate individual or group causes into a collective that already has its form supplied to it from elsewhere. And so I think I would agree with a critique of someone like Reinhard Mehring, who says this early book represents an anti-individualist credo as clear as can possibly be. So I just perhaps end with the question there. You know, what is the meaning of these recent dabblings with Schmidt, if we can put it that way? Uh, what is lacking for thinkers of the left that they should seek resources from one such as Schmidt to get from that realm of concrete human life to an account of the social? And with that, perhaps I'll open it up to your wisdom and insights, uh, particularly if you're engaging with some of these contemporary thinkers. Uh, so thanks again for listening to that somewhat technical um, journey through Schmidt, but one that I think is important given his um, prevalence and that sort of marginal um, space in which people engage with him today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Tim, for that wonderful um, sort of setting of the table at which um, I think we will now royally feast for the next half hour. Um, for, for those of you who are familiar with these seminars, you will know that the way that we tend to do things is if you have a, a question that you'd like to ask or a comment that you'd like to make, uh, please do uh, write just a, a one-line version of it in the chat, and I will call upon people in the order that those comments come in the chat so there's no need to sort of raise your hand or try and jump in when there's a gap or anything like that. Uh, just let me know uh, in the chat when you have a question. Um, and if I may, Tim, while other people are uh, thinking what they may want to ask, if I could begin with the, the first question. And the, the short version of it would be, okay, but to what extent do we need Schmidt for this? So how much of this can you get without having to go via Carl Schmidt himself, given all the, the problems associated with that that you very helpfully set out for us. And the slightly longer version is that it seems to me that the friend-enemy distinction is a trope that, in, in one way or another, recurs really quite frequently in the history of thought. Um, the, the idea of a, a distinction that is constitutively defining of an identity and that identity is constructed by, by in, in contradistinction to what it opposes 
is is not Schmidt doesn't have the copyright on that idea. You know, the 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 Greek polis and the 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 surrounding countryside with the barbarians and so forth, the the whole French idea of the the banlieue, the place of banishment outside the city, the 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 social contract itself that retrojects this chimeric state of nature in order to define itself in opposition to the thing that it imagines it was or would like to imagine that it was it, it would seem that there's something of the friend enemy in these things um hegel's master servant i don't think is a million miles away from this um and and hobbes you know with with himself having the idea of the the decisive moment of decision that brings the state into being and then you just one final example is not to trespass on your patience you, you've got sort of modern ideas that take this up as well and don't seem to refer to schmidt there's um a sociologist called rebecca costa who's got this idea of the oppositional society you know we define ourselves today um her thesis is in terms of what we oppose we find our own identity by deciding what we're going to be against and so Given that there are these ideas historically and, and in this contemporary way that don't seem to refer to Schmidt, why why are these contemporary thinkers going to him in particular for this oppositional idea, for this idea of the, the, the decisive moment or the friend-enemy distinction? And how much of this do you think we can get without necessarily having to go to Schmidt himself? Well, we might start with something like the work of Latour again, who is going to problematize forms of political life in our contemporary domain that lift up, make that movement from the realm of concrete life to some institutional form. And as you know, Chris, he quite often describes that in terms of the globe or the sphere, something that is um, already constituted as a form. Um, he offers the image of um, lines or um, uh, what does he call them, sort of lines that spread, that then create this global form. But he's very concerned about his global institutions that have prematurely unified the voices and interests of those down below. So he's not optimistic at finding a social form that doesn't somehow rely on a Schmittian concept in terms of um you know where else might we find um iterations of friend enemy distinction well obviously all of human society and the process of harmonization itself is defined by these sorts of exclusions and we can find really interesting work in social and cultural evolution that shows that um, but we also find work there showing forms of sort of pro-sociality um, that seem to come way before a sort of Hobbesian contract of the rational. Um, but I think Schmidt would say that those sorts of exclusions actually fall outside his definition of the friend-enemy distinction. Those would be based on, you know, the list we saw in that citation, moral categories, hatreds, uh, animosities, aesthetic considerations, racial considerations, none of those fall under the domain of the political for Schmidt, which is this more refined uh, exclusion that is generative of a productive social life, or at least that's one way of looking at it. 
And I think in terms of these other sort of German thinkers who offer variations on this, well, in many ways, I mean, Schmidt was a reader of um, sort of tragedies, um, and he would see, you know, the tragic impulse um, is ultimately derivative of a failure to make this sort of cut or decision. So, you know, he reads Hamlet and he sees Hamlet as paradigmatic of um, more, the modern liberal subject that can never actually, um, that has a cherished a highest value um, and believes in the general good, as it were, and, or something, but can never actually bring that to coalescence and therefore into action. And he, Schmidt, read German you know, tragedy as well in that similarized, full of characters that can never really bring bring this, bring themselves into the realm of the political and therefore lapse uh, psychologically into despair. And even with Hobbes, I think, um, I mean, there are readings of Hobbes, aren't there, that see, see him as a sort of, um, I almost an ironist that, you know, he's, Hobbes is saying, if we've lost a genuine commitment to, um, an ethical good, what Schmidt would call recht, some substantive ideal. You know, if that's where we are in our 17th century civil war situation, then this, therefore, is the best we can hope for, pulling our rationalities and entering into a contract by means of a decision. Um, I mean, that might be a slightly refined reading of Hobbes, but I think, again, Schmidt's sort of identifying a lot of these thinkers as not quite getting to his definition of politics. And I think, you know, even Latour, who reads Hobbes, who reads um, Rousseau, you know, he too senses that Schmidt offers something more precise and refined. Anyway, bit of babble there, but uh, very, yeah, interesting. <laughs> No, that is extremely helpful, and that 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 did address the the, the point that that I was raising really really quite quite helpfully for me anyway. So thank you. Um, I see that uh, Willem has a comment um, that you you wrote in the chat. Willem, would you like to to mention that uh, viva voce so that the people can benefit from what you were writing there? Yes, most certainly, Chris. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for your uh, great uh, lecture. Uh, that's uh, very uh, illuminating for me, and uh, I also suspect for, for all of us. Um, I, I, I refer uh, to uh, George Agamben, uh, his uh, work, uh, Homo Satya, where he um, has his idea, uh, where central is the idea of the state of exception as a paradigm of uh, Western modern life uh, in, his, uh, in his magnus opus uh, Homo Satya. In, the, in his last uh, contribution, uh, the use of bodies. He uh, he he goes uh, he goes he says or he states that um, Auschwitz is uh, really the paradigm of our Western society, political, uh, and that's that's a, a great uh, statement, a brutal statement. So uh, I I wonder um, how do you see this? Um, uh, the first question for, for Chris: uh, How, how, why do, do we need uh, this, uh, uh, this, this thoughts of Smith? Uh, this, this is a great key point uh, to 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 make uh, 
to see structures in, politic, in politics, in Western politics, uh, what's going on. So uh, in uh, contemporary time, uh, we see Israel, Hamas, uh, we see U Ukraine. So sta state of uh, exclusion uh, is there, uh, and it's about states. How do you see that uh, in this context? Well, thanks, Willem, and sorry about that furlong here in the college. I didn't catch some of the middle part, but um, I think in terms of Gamben, um, he's, I would read him as uh, worrying about this state of, worrying about a state of exception that would itself be a misreading of Schmidt. So yes, indeed, a state of exception that reduces um to bear life and so on um in that's the diagnosis schmidt makes of liberalism and technocratic supervenience and so on and so forth schmidt's trying to claim that his his state of exceptionality uh is this moment where the individual can be dignified in his or her own you know interests and then the plurality that that plurality can somehow be sorted and filtered and put into an order now of course that's a tendentious reading that but i do think that's what schmidt is claiming his state of exception does um although i qualified that slightly at the end of my lecture um i think gambit is sometimes quite a poor reader of Schmidt and in that sense you know and he's deploying concepts without necessarily sort of um bringing them back to source always very well um but yes I would certainly agree with Akamben's diagnosis of the risk and I think you know co-pandemic which for me you know obviously was a real emergency in every sense of the word but I would also sort of have some sympathy with his um, warning that these are moments where sort of police, a sort of technocratic science-led policing could could be smuggled in again uh, to the detriment of that swirling realm of human life with its values that is defined by pol the political, not by the scientific. For Schmidt, the scientific is a different sort of realm that has a different sort of value to it and, and its own use. But it's when that becomes supervenient over the political that there's danger of sort of technocratic policing and then we revert back to sort of general norms of liberalism. Thank you, Tim. Very clear. Thank you indeed, Tim. Um, could I invite uh, Petra, please, to, to ask the question that you've so eloquently expressed in the chat? Sorry, I'll try to get my video going so you're not, I'm not talking to a back screen. Thank you so much. That was really fascinating. I've mainly read Schmidt as a political theologian. So through my work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and I started reading Carl Schmidt there. And um, my question is about the, the extent to which you think theology informs Schmidt's political views, particularly on the friend-enemy relation, which is rooted in the story of Cain and Abel. And it's a very primordial kind of account of conflict 
um, and existential conflict in in our I guess uh, co collective narrative, certainly in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and it's influential for Schmidt. Um, and so that doesn't seem to me to be an account of just a, a particular nation state having a sovereign and and seeing itself in identity to another nation state. Um, it seems much more um, agonistic, potentially, that the conflict emerges, the friend-enemy relationship emerges from even within states, within very close relationships um, as part of the nomos. So I guess my question is, what account, how, what, what role do you see theology as playing in this development of uh, in Schmidt's work more generally, but also in this account of the friend-enemy relation? I hope that's clear. <laughs> Thank you, Petra. And I would concur entirely with your understanding of Schmidt as a primarily a political theologian, and that's where most of my work on him is centered. And you may know more than me, but you know, in summary, we have an early Catholic Schmidt. Um, we have a Schmidt that was engaging in Catholic circles in Strasbourg and Bonn in the, in the pre and post-war uh, period. Uh, Schmidt clearly wanted to be a Catholic thinker all the way up to the mid-20s, and you might know this story. It's very often in Schmidt, the thought is linked to the crisis of his own life. And as you might know, in 1916, Schmidt married his first wife, Pavla Dorotic, um, this was a, a woman that claimed to be, uh, I think she claimed to be a, um, well, she claimed to be a countess. I think she claimed to be an Austrian countess. And it turns out she was a Croatian woman that was a sort of cabaret dancer uh, and so on. And Schmidt was warned by all his friends at the time that this looked like a sham. And she was playing him and he went ahead. And he was very often devote, devoted to an idea an ideal, and in this time of his life, it was an ideal of love, um, and that became transferred to an ideal of sovereign authority or the state or something. But he sought, uh, once he found out within a few weeks, he sought an annulment, which he was not granted by the Catholic Church, by a Catholic tribunal for various complicated reasons, and he became very, very bitter indeed against the Catholic institutional um, and the law and so on. So that's the sort of, as always, there's always a story to do with Schmidt's, the chaos of Schmidt's own life. But he sought to be a Catholic thinker. Uh, he saw uh, an echo of this order in the early, um, in canon, early, in the early ecclesiastical situation. You know, he was very interested in debates between von Harnack and, and Schurm and others at the time about canon law and what constituted the legal basis of the early Christian church and all this sort of stuff. Um, so the political theology, I think, comes in that the church or religion can model this sovereignty, but I would tentatively suggest that religion becomes, as it were, the ideal sovereign for Schmidt, an ideal that truly um, decides on um, values and meaning and that ideally represents them. So this is a little bit of a complicated situation as we go through the 1921 book on Roman Catholicism and political form through to the political theology book itself, 
and then at, certainly out the other end of the war in the Nomos of the Earth, and then the Political Theology 2 book. Um, I think that um, Schmidt interpreted religion as being em the essence of some of this dynamic, um, but we haven't quite got to that here in the early in the early texts. Petra, would you. you like to come back? Would, do you have any further comments to, to make in response? Sorry, me? I'm so sorry, Petra. Yes, I was just wondering oh, if, you, if you wanted sorry. to come, come back after Tim. Um, no, no, I was going to mention political theology too, because he returns to it at the end of his life, but you but you already did. So, no, I appreciate it. Thank you and, and your feedback. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Stephanie. Another part of religion, sorry, another oh, part no, of please. religion to do with um, this very interesting concept of the katekon, which we could get into as well, which is the idea not only of a sovereign power doing all the things we've discussed today, but a sovereign power that actually holds back a time of crisis, degeneracy and chaos. He was always very concerned above all things for collapse into chaos, as you know. And um, Schmidt actually took a New Testament concept coming from the second letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, talking of a force or power that holds back or defers the coming of the end. And so Schmidt identified that force um, as inhering in various political systems and sovereign rulers and so on. So this is again the intersection of politics and religion. For Schmidt, there's something apocalyptic about the risk of disorder, and there's something highly religious about the imposition of order. But of course, what we're claiming is that that imposition is of an order that somehow conglomerates the real things that matter down below. And actually, that would be a nice definition of religion for me, wouldn't it? One that and one that actually animated the public sphere rather than sort of nullified, de-energized, or was supervenient over it. Uh, and these are good debates within sort of contemporary political theology as well. Sorry. No, I'm delighted that you uh, were able to add those thoughts, Tim. Thank you so much. Uh, could I invite Stephanie now, please, to ask uh, your question? Hi, thank you so much for that uh, incredibly interesting talk. Um, I have a quick question, and I ho I'm very sorry if this can be easily answered, because um, perhaps this question will reflect my sort of ignorance about Schmidt. But what I was wondering was actually uh, really interested me was about how you were saying that the basis of all social order in Schmidt's work is uh, the sovereignty of the state, um, and that this authority is sort of paramount and it's extended very far. Um, but at the same time, the highest flourishing of individuals is to strive towards freedom. Um, and the fact that the representation of the friend and enemy distinctions insofar as um, that the state ought to represent these real concrete debates between people and different values. Um, and I'm just wondering how that might uh, differ from the state of nature where I suppose we could think of uh, the friend and enemy distinctions arising naturally um, without the need for them to be sort of formalized in the um, in the sort of scheme of the state. So I was just wondering um, sort of vaguely about that relationship um, and I was wondering perhaps why um, if 
why there's the need to invoke the state. I did lose a little bit of that in the middle, Stephanie. I'm really sorry, uh, but this is about the role of individuals in the state of nature as friends and enemies. Yes, and whether that relationship can exist before it's sort of lifted up and framed in the political. Is that what you're... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, my internet isn't very good. I apologize. Um, yeah, I was just wondering why the state is necessary to formalize that friend and enemy distinction. Yeah. Yes, it's a really good question, isn't it? And I and I um I think he's flattening out that decisionistic moment in a way that perhaps Hobbes sort of identified. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, are we talking here of one moment where the state of nature is um is um is um moved beyond and people move into a social contract what does Hobbes say about that what is is this a single punctuated moment in history well obviously we can see intimations of this in all sorts of ways and actually one of my current projects is on cultural evolution and we have these really amazing um understandings of sort of neolithic people that are able to provide proto healthcare systems for each other there are highly developed um you know and costly sacrificial mechanisms we think for caring for members of a community and presumably therefore defending its identity against others so i think there's no doubt that he's you know offering a sort of more abstract conceptual understanding of how particular communities come out of the state of nature and enter into a political community that doesn't have to be identified with a single punctuated moment in history. Um, but what what do you think? Because um, you know, I think Schmidt is often understood as is often read that way, isn't he? And he then uses sort of the language of nomos to identify sort of world historical moments where these configurations are displayed to more or less with more or less integrity um but what do you think if you've got any sort of further insight into that broader sweep of history um well i i can i'm not quite sure what i think because i'm not that familiar with uh, schmidt's work but um perhaps i was just maybe that distinction would be based on whether we would think that the state of nature existed historically or not um, to sort of tie the relationship between the state emerging in conjunction or out of the state of nature. But um, yeah, it just seems um, really interesting to me how it seems like the friend enemy distinction in the state of nature is what Schmidt wants to be formally by the state. Um, so I'm just wondering, I guess, yeah, I don't really have a, an answer, but I was just, um, it's interesting as to where it transitioned from just individuals holding those relationships naturally, sort of freely in the state of nature, to them being formalized by the state and why that sort of next step is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I I don't I don't have an answer to that, but I I wonder if part of it might be thought of 
in terms of the the way in which Hobbes in the State of Nature chapter of Leviathan um, talks about the the alliances that are formed in the State of Nature. So it is a war of all against all, but it's not a war with defined stable parties, defined stable armies. Um, it's whoever's strongest at a particular point, everyone picks on them, <laughs> basically, and, and sort of forms alliances to knock down the tall poppy. Um, and then once that's happened, the alliances recoalesce in a, in, in a different way. So perhaps one way to think of it could potentially be that there, there are these distinctions, these friend-like and enemy-like distinctions in the state of nature, but they're so fluid and they're so constantly changing that that what the what the social contract does is it it solidifies them into something that can serve as the basis of social order because the 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 fluid distinctions of the state of nature although that it is a war of all against all and there are enemies in that sense perhaps can't save us serve as that basis so that might be one potential way to 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 think about that um luke could i invite you please to to ask your question here hi yeah it's, I guess my question, it's, not, it's hard to really formulate precisely what I wanted to ask, but it is something about that I'm surprised in a way that you're going back to this, this early text from 1913 on the topic of the, like in this research group about the social contract, when perhaps it would be more interesting to look at these, like the texts around 1927, when he's developing a kind of like democratic theory of sociality or something that underlies the formal side of the state um, in, in the works on the Volksentscheidung and uh, these these texts on, you know, referendums and things. And he has this theory of political acclamation that I'm sure you're aware of that is sort of drawn on theological sources, like uh, primarily um, his friend uh, at the Times, uh, what's his name again? I can't uh, uh, yeah, who wrote the f monotheism as a political problem text? Yes, Eric, um, Eric Peterson. Eric Peterson, yes. Um, and it just seems like that that would be a more sort of uh, productive place to sort of start questioning Schmidt on, like the, the the social as such, which is a which is kind of one of the themes of your talk. And because really, I mean, this this concept of the political is precisely not. It's kind of not a social concept. In so what it is, it's sort of like about social groupings and when do they become kind of political in in intent. And it's precisely for Schmidt when you have this kind of friend enemy distinction. Uh, but in the kind in the the later uh, just after that, when he starts developing the stuff around political acclamation and his commentaries comes close to giving like a number of commentaries on things like the social contract is about Locke's version of it and Rousseau's version of it, that seems like a more productive place to look for a theory of the individual and sociality than the 1913 text, mm. which, I mean, generally, in, in the Schmidt yeah. scholarship, no one really takes that text very seriously, to be honest. Like, it's, a, yeah. it's been very, no one, I think, anyway. Or nomos, even when he returns to these concepts in the 1950s, the nomos is almost like a social, it's precisely this kind of social concept that predates the formalized uh, figure of law. 
for the state. Say that last sentence again. That was I really mean, interesting. I think that if you look like in this is sort of touches on Stephanie's question. I think that for Schmidt, you have this. You there is like an informal sense of the state, which is precisely what is given in the nomos. But he sort of feels like people need this needs to be formalized in moments to give people a sense of security uh, because he, he doesn't believe that this kind of informal sense of sociality is really sufficient for a political grouping or, or will inevitably evolve into something more formalized. Um, yeah. So, I've done yeah. lots of, thank you very much indeed. Sorry, it's not, not a very clear question. No, there's lots, because uh, I've, I've made many elisions in this sort of fairly generic, because the main focus I started with was trying to get to where people like Latour, what they were reading. I do agree that the work around constitutional theory and so on is vital. I think the acclamation idea is also critical, um, partly because it defines a decision in terms of the apparatus that un undergirds it. So, you know, there's always a decision, there's only a decision insofar as it's enacted and um, carried out by, you know, the people around the decision maker, which itself implies a sort of sociality and so on. And I do definitely concede your very important distinction. I, I was, I've been at times a bit careless in using language of social in uh, juxtaposition with political. And as you correctly say, those would be different domains for Schmidt, um, although linked. And it's interesting, of course, that Latour himself takes up that distinction in his masterwork, the different modes of existence, where he's using some of this conceptuality as well. But I would, I would slightly push back on the 1913 text, which, um, you know, and I've got, I've been working on it quite heavily. And this, I think there are, there is a sense in which the mediation of Recht into positive and statutory law is the absolute sort of nexus of all these questions of how sovereignty is mediated through the state or sovereign ruler to the people. Uh, and I do think Schmidt sort of held these in importance. They were picked up by the Kelsen group and so on and often referred back to. So that text and the one on statutes and judgment, which deals with cassettes, I think are do follow through all the subsequent work. And that's actually the argument made by the, um, the in the very good commentary within this particular edition. It's worth a look. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Um, Alma, could I invite you uh, to ask your question, please? You're, you're very indistinct. We can hear something, but it's oh. extremely faint. Oh, that's much better. That's okay. much better. All right. So I hope you can hear me now better. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, for your great uh, talk. My question is actually about uh, the, the, the place of uh, this concept of Recht uh, in uh, Schmidt's political uh, theology and the role of this political theology in his uh, concept of sovereignty and its relation to the general will, actually. General will and the way he actually accommodates uh, the general consent uh, into this uh, relationship between 
the concept of Recht and also uh, sovereignty, the, the political theology bound sovereignty of the state. Thank you. Yes. And this is now super technical, but, you know, he does have no content for the Recht that is the general substantive order that is me then mediated through state to the gen to the population and so it's an entirely em it's a somewhat empty placeholder and there is the moral vacuum you might discern at the heart of schmidt's actual thought um but yes, I think, again, the political authority is, I mean, so Mil, John Milbank has a recent article where he tries to argue that really this early Schmidt, the Catholic Schmidt, is the, is the key, is, is the real Schmidt. And he does indeed have a sense of normative order, a commitment to the absolute ethical and the good, and that he gets that from Christian theology. He's he actually is a you know a Thomist, uh, a, a natural law Thomist, says Milbank, and that Milbank then argues that Schmidt goes into a sort of Schmidt two phase, which is the sovereignty phase, where he gets all in a pickle about how that actually is encapsulated in the nation state, but comes out of it post war into a Schmidt three phase. That it was once again committed to sort of ideas this time of international order that can have a link to natural law and even sort of Catholic social teaching traditions and so on. And um, that third Schmidt is sort of again more like the real Schmidt. So it's hard, it's a bit of a it's a stretch to say that the the work of someone in approximately eight years of their life is the true work against the Reds for subsequent 50 years. But um, that's what he argues. And, you know, this is going to be a key debate in sort of political theology of Schmidt. It's like, what, what actually, what is the understanding of Catholic orthodoxy here? Um, are we just co-opting categories for a politics or is it a politics actually informed by some kind of universal horizon for the good. And I think it's pretty hard to see where that universal horizon is because wherever you look for it, you find a sort of deathly silence in Schmidt's life and work. <laughs> he was an awful man, of course. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. Thank you. We are approaching the end there is time for a, a short question if anyone has one and wants to jump in uh, without having written anything in the chat this is now your moment and i'm going to speak for seven or eight seconds i think just to give you the opportunity to do that if you want to before i wrap things up um and if not uh, then uh, it just remains uh, for me uh, to thank our speaker for this session mm. Oh, was that was that so? Yeah, I I couldn't ah. put my hand up. Can I jump in really briefly? Because I I really like to know. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned him, the voluntaristic. I think for, I recall because I was in transit for the first part of the lecture. I had to jump off with my phone, but a voluntaristic aspect to sovereignty, which some uh, which comes from Protestant theology on the influence of Protestantism on Schmidt. Um. 
uh, and I wonder, I guess I wonder whether you have come across that or not, um, any any of the writing on the influence of Protestant thought and secularized Protestant thought, perhaps, on Schmidt, rather than Schmidt as a Catholic theologian. This might be opening a whole new question, and we don't have well, time. He should have, been, um, he should have been much more Catholic, and it was indeed in the debates with um, Catholic convert Eric Peterson that some of this uh, confusion arises. He was also friends at the time with the Jesuit priest Eric Fujara, who was working on ideas of the analogy of being and of the mm. sort of natural order being infused with grace and goodness and so on. That was much more in line with Schmidt one, where he should have he should have stayed in that track. And yes, it was the it was the voluntaristic um Protestant sort of pure nature stuff that was the um ingredients for some of the sort of more problematic sovereignty mm. arguments that we can trace today so yeah it should have been more catholic <laughs> I, say that as a, I say that as an anglican priest myself so as a protestant committed to the protestant religion in these bare lands but uh he should have stayed with his jesuit friends i think thank you wonderful uh thank you so much petra for um for bringing that that question up um it remains only uh to do what is perhaps one of the the the, the most pleasant duties of the evening which is to thank uh, our speaker very much indeed uh, reverend dr timothy house please join me uh, in thanking tim <laughs>